My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson, and we are back um, with this is part I think this is part three or part four I can't remember because we split one up into two of the biblical anthropology series but this is the next part of the biblical anthropology series um, called how has the fall affected men Um, because last one we did was how has the fall affected women and so um, now we're going to talk about how it's affected men so um, to get started I guess I'll just read uh, from Genesis 3 17 through through whenever 317 to what where does that end Always um 21 maybe 21 so i'll just read through it and then we can just start talking talking about what all this means so then to adam he said because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which i commanded you saying you shall not eat from it cursed is the ground because of you in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return so this is so i we're back up to the beginning of this verse 17 says because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate from the tree which i commanded you what so basically adam's getting in trouble because he listened to his wife obviously because he ate from the tree but because he listens to his wife so what's yeah we'll start there i know like the modern urban i know you're in minneapolis the modern urban young person probably would read that passage and notice two things one that that adam listened to his wife and that god apparently think that that's bad and then the result of the fall is is that we will have a a high carb diet that uh, we'll be eating bread the rest of our lives. And that mm-hmm. both of those just seem in, like intolerable statements. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So I, th- I think first the idea, the the Hebrew idiom is to listen to the voice of your wife, mm-hmm. um, which is both more artful than listen to your wife, which is inherently offensive, but it's also um, intentional, right? Because the contrast in this verse is the parallel between the voice of your wife and I commanded Right. So God is saying, I commanded you. So God, the one who has authority, spoke authoritatively as a command. And instead, there there was something about the voice of the wife that he listened to instead of God. Right. Mm -hmm. And that that. So there's a couple things about that that's really important. The first is that um, this is a pre-fall temptation. Mm. So in that sense, it's it's a temptation that's rooted in a natural good. So, um, a man rightly likes to please his wife Mm -hmm. and there's something about the voice of his wife. When his wife speaks to him, if he is not fallen, like the part of him that is a good part of his nature wishes to listen Mm -hmm. and wishes to please his wife. Mm -hmm. So the, the issue here is not that he likes his wife. He likes listening to her. He listened to her voice, that her voice matters, right? Mm -hmm. It's that he did it instead of listening to the command of God. Yeah. That's the issue. Which could be hard even now trying to figure out as a man, <laughs> like if you, if you know that you want to like 
please your wife and do what she says, but you also know you want to please God and do what he says. It could be like hard to decipher what thing to do. Cause I mean, obviously like the, the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, you, you eat from it. God said specifically, don't eat that one. But I mean, I know even for myself, sometimes it'll be like, I will, I need to like go have a quiet time at night before bed. And Andrea will want to like, you know, me to like stay in the room and talk. And I know that that's good, but I also know that if I don't get my quiet time, that that's also not good. It's just like so confusing because I don't know what to do in those situations, you know? And it feels like if I don't do one, I'm going to like make somebody mad, either God or my wife. So yeah. that, I feel like that's still something that we deal with today. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, I mean, in almost every way, right? So, I mean, the idea, the, the, so yeah, so part of that is just preference that has nothing to do with moral stature. Like a woman wanting to talk to her yeah. husband is normal. Yeah. And no, right, right. And so Alexa and I have the same issue, except sometimes it's more the reverse. Like I'm, it's like in the early morning, the kids aren't up yet. And this is a moment where I could actually talk to my wife and she could actually talk to me. Mm-hmm. And she goes to talk to the Lord and have mm-hmm. a quiet time and like have like some time before everybody gets up. And mm-hmm. like that, that's really, that's hard for me sometimes because I want to see her. And mm-hmm. I don't get to usually, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty common. So yeah, that's, that's a big thing. Right. In fact, it's so, that's so much so normal in marriage. I think that in first Corinthians seven, it talks about men and women having, having sexual intercourse in marriage, which seems like it would be like a reasonable priority. And then it says, unless, except for sometimes you should refrain and pray. Yeah. And you're like, well, why is it an either or, right? Yeah. Well, you get, you get a couple of kids in the mix and you realize it is an either or like, like you've only got. You've only got tiny fleeting moments with each other sometimes and you have to decide whether to devote those to God or to each other, you know, whether Uh, in the direct ways of like prayer together versus sex or like just generally like, like, you know, what am I going to use 930 to 1034, you know? Right. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's a moral thing. Like a woman, your wife wants you to do something that you know is wrong and you have to obey her or God. Right. Or it's an issue of just preference. Like what's, Mm -hmm. what is the better thing to choose? Right. Mm -hmm. And that's a different spiritual, that's like the Mary and Martha passage. Like you've got to figure out what's the most needful thing. Cause she wants to talk to you, but if you, you, you skip enough quiet times and you're not going to be the (laughs) kind of man she wants to talk to. Exactly. Yeah. So, and they can get confusing then. Right. It's, it's very interesting. That's more a question of prudence because talking to your wife is an inherent spiritual good and talking to the Lord is an inherent spiritual good. And I mean, I, for for me, and I'm not a huge, I'm like, I'm not a huge devotee of TD Jakes, but one of his (laughs) insights I really like is, is he's like, um, He's like, what do you do when these are in conflict? He says, just try not to disappoint the same person too many times in a row. Because oh. you yeah. can't please. He's like, you can't please everybody you want to please. It's mm-hmm. not just everybody like your insecurities want to please. You can't even yeah. please everybody you want to please. And yeah. so what you have to do is you have to kind of take turns. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I, that was the first thing I just thought of because I, I – and obviously – yeah, and just for the record, I – I don't think that it's like a sin to talk to my wife. Um, it's yeah. not. It's not the same t- situation or as a Adam sin and Eve. not to have a quiet time. I think. I think is the yeah. more, uh, more probably the thing people would have assumed listening to that. Yeah. They're like, yeah. oh well, I have to get my quiet time, or it's a sin. Well, no, it's yeah. it's, it's a nourishment. It's like not eating, yeah. right? And so, like, you can skip a meal, yeah. but you skip too many, and you start to get gaunt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I okay. So I think, gosh, there's so much in this. So, I mean, do you want to continue off of the idea of 
Adam listening to the voice of his wife. Or no, I just think it's important to recognize that that um, that God is very clear why he why this curse is striking the man, and it's because he listened to the voice of his wife instead of the command of God. Mm-hmm. Not he listened to his wife. Mm-hmm. He listened to yeah. So I think yeah. and then given that, um, it's going to be more difficult because now she's going to be worse. Yeah. Right. Because she's mm-hmm. now going to try to control him mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of the curse on her. And now he still has to not do this. Mm-hmm. Listen to his wife, wife when he should listen to the command of God. And so yeah. that is the first part of the curse that like mm-hmm. you have to not only overcome the curse, you have to do what you should have done in the first place. Mm-hmm. Not listen to your wife instead of me. Mm-hmm. And now she's going to be worse because she's going to be more selfish, more controlling than she was before. Mm-hmm. And you still have to listen to me instead of her. Right. Yeah. Even though you'll still want to listen to her because that's naturally good, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, it gets confusing. It feels like it gets confusing. Um, so, okay, right, right away, God says, "Cursed is the ground because of you," which just feels like a weird thing. Because, I mean, you read that, I'm like, that has nothing to do with Adam. Like, I like it feels like it has nothing to do. That's the ground. Like, who cares what happens to the ground? So it feels very abstract. But obviously, this is what God chose to. Um, curse first for Adam. So, what does that even? What does that mean? Why? Why was that an important thing for God to do? Yeah. So, in both cases, the man for the man and the woman, God curses a thing most inherent to their special product. Mm-hmm. So, what women do that men can't do? Not mm-hmm. it's not that women are only child bearers. It's that only right. women can be child bearers. I know that there's yeah. some ideological problems with that today, with birthing <laughs> people and all that. But like, I think <laughs> that I think that normatively we can. Yeah. We can accept that in the human we'll race. We'll take the that, traditional route. Yeah, here. that women yeah. <laughs> women can have children and men cannot yeah. bear right. children. That is to to form them and nurture them in their womb and then nurse them mm-hmm. with their very bodies, right? Yeah. And so that is special to women and that is what gets cursed for women, mm-hmm. right? Something that is a natural good and their responsibility, right? Because it says in the yeah. creation mandate to fill the earth to be fruitful and multiply. So having children is part of good human existence. And now that's going to be cursed for the woman. Right. And so the, the alternative to that is the man's job in tending the garden, providing for his wife and to bring order out of the chaos of creation, the taking of dominion. Well, the Mm -hmm. main thing he's taking dominion over is creation. Right. right? And so the ground that is the Haaretz, the earth, right. Mm -hmm. It's not literally just the ground, but right. It's like all of creation is now going to be kind of fighting him rather than submitting to him, which is precisely Mm -hmm. what, is happening in the curse that is in one sense, God curses the people judicially, but Mm -hmm. in another sense, just like God said, when you eat from the tree, you will surely die. Mm -hmm. He didn't necessarily, he didn't say, I'm going to kill you. He said, you're going to die. Like that will certainly happen. Mm -hmm. Similarly, like when the man and the woman decide to upend the order of creation, they decide the woman's in charge of the man and the man's in charge of God rather than the other way around. Right. Mm-hmm. And the woman in charge of creation, she listens to creation rather than taking authority over it. Right. When that reverses, then it reverses. Right. Mm-hmm. The thing that the man, the woman choose is their curse. If, the, if you want to switch the order of authority, then guess what? Guess what's going to not submit to you? Creation. Creation. Yeah. So um, so having like good births for women goes away mm-hmm. right because that is how how nature submits to them mm-hmm. and for man like taking dominion over the earth especially for their own food and well-being mm-hmm. reverses and so the earth won't submit to him yeah he has to force it to yeah okay so yeah so and i mean and right after that it goes into in toil in toil you will eat of it and i know right i've actually heard people be like heart like 
work is a result of the fall. Um, and that's, that doesn't seem to be true though, because God gave Adam some jobs in the, in the garden. He gave him some work. He had him name all the animals. So what, I guess we should probably talk about the difference between, between work and extremely difficult work. Or I don't know. I don't know what the toil is yeah, totally referring to. Yeah. That's what the, the biblical word is toil. That is work yeah. that is degraded by unnecessary difficulty. Yeah. Right. Or, or that is not rejuvenating work. Right. Right. There's a sense in which working, like even working with your hands, like physical labor can be rejuvenating to the human body. Like, like when, when yeah. we don't exercise, our bodies get worse, not better. Like right. For, for a couple of days, they heal if we've been working really hard and then they start degrading. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Martin Luther said that the life of a scholar degrades and breaks down the body because you're sitting in a chair and you're lowly oh, looking yeah. 30, you know, 20 <laughs> inches all day long. And he's like the peasants that like their health is built up and strengthened by their work. Right. Yeah. But like what God says is, is that what was work that is because he put the man in the garden to tend it and take care of it. Scripture says, mm-hmm. and he gave him dominion taking like naming animals, like you said. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he had this work that he was to do, but it was like, it was, it was good work. Like the creation was cooperating with him. He was bringing dominion to it. Um, and it was extremely productive and it was stable. Right. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, because of the curse, the creation will not submit. Mm-hmm. And so he has to be more of a conqueror than a, than an artist, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's difficult, you know? And so that's what his work becomes. And so his work becomes, instead of being predictable and abundant and stable, it becomes unpredictable um, mm-hmm. scarce and unstable. And mm-hmm. so men, men's fundamental nature with the earth and creation has been changed by that fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what are some examples? Cause I know if I'm, I'm listening to this, I'm kind of like, okay, like we live in a time where because of technology and advancements, it doesn't seem like, like I get that it's like difficult to deal with creation sometimes, but like we can, build like buildings and houses in like, you know, like a couple weeks. And so it doesn't seem like it's too difficult. It seems like we've mastered the land in some ways and we've got roads and airplanes. And back then maybe that it was more difficult for them, but, but now we, it seems like we've overcome that. Like, I mean, that, that was, that may be what maybe some younger people are thinking. Like it doesn't seem too difficult anymore. I mean, I don't see how people would say that when the entire world shut down for two years over a glorified flu. That's true. You know, I mean, and I, I don't mean to like belittle COVID-19, but essentially it's a flu type virus. Yeah. It was slightly deadlier than some flus, than our common mm-hmm. flu and less deadly than things like the Spanish flu, right? So it's yeah. essentially, it's a resp- upper respiratory disease. It's like a flu, right? Mm-hmm. And man, it threw us into fits. And this is 2020 to 22, right? Like most yeah. of the time in human history so far. And so <laughs> I, like I have my my issues about that also. I mean like mm. yeah, like there's all kinds of countries in the world that have complete monetary collapse. I mean in like the last 15 years, mm. um, the average person lost 28 to 35 pounds in Venezuela from starving. You know, uh. and so I mean um, there are famines and like major natural disasters still. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean just in my garden, like half of my cabbage will – like get eaten by slugs and bugs and rabbits and crap yeah. this year, even though I'll try to, I'll have a fence around my garden and I'll try to protect it, yeah. you know, and my, t- and my tomatoes will die of wilt in you know, late August. And mm-hmm. like, you know what I mean? I mean, my, you know, my chickens will stop laying eggs. I'll have to get new ones and yeah. my stuff won't compost as fast as I wanted. And like it, 
it just does it's not going to work for you. Yeah. And listen, so, I I'm 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 the uh, leader of an organization that has a building that was built in 1991 and part of it built in like 2014. Listen, I can show you the maintenance schedule. Right? Hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars of crap falling apart. Because everything falls apart. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, keep up and all that. I guess it, that's, that's easy why, not to think about. That's why about the that. average like young person who like gets their like flavored coffees should thank their local maintenance man. Like they have no idea. Most most yeah. people have no idea what is done to just maintain the things they do every day. Yeah, it's unbelievable what's right. done behind the scenes by people who work really hard. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree. I think that's something that probably that most mostly probably goes on notice from the younger generations, just because yeah. we all yeah, and be. see a lot. There's a lot of especially the young these, the younger coaches that listen to this podcast. Often, most of them don't own their own home, but yeah. the, like that's one of that's a rude awakening, man. You own your own home, and your water heater breaks, and you have to redo your siding, and there's ants coming in one side of it, and like it becomes real clear real fast that that uh, nature isn't playing fair. It is funny. It's cause it's like, everybody wants to get, a I mean, that's like a big thing. Everybody wants yeah. to get their first house. They want to have a house and everything. It's and great, but it's a whole yeah. new education. I mean, right, I, I just, I, this last week, my dryer just stopped working. You just, know? It, yeah. yeah. Like, and we, we live, I mean, we live in an apartment that's pretty nice and I'm like, this is pretty nice too. Like we don't have to do, we don't have to plow. We don't have to do any of that stuff. Yeah. And, and if anything yeah, breaks, people, you just tell maintenance. People do a lot for a yard. And like I, Lexi and yeah. I talked about buying a house with some acreage relatively yeah. close to Madison because I, I really don't like living in the city. We were both country kids and yeah. we we like some of the things about the city, but the, the, the glorification of cities, I don't understand, especially in a culture that is not cohesive, right? Like we just, <laughs> American culture has destroyed its agreement with yeah. each other yeah. in, in a very vicious and mean spirited way. And so now yeah. um, we don't share a culture. And so when yeah. you stick people so close together with a culture they don't share, it's not pretty. It's not a yeah. fun thing. It's not like going to mm -hmm. Prague or Budapest, you know, yeah. and like, you know, drinking wine at midnight. It's like, yeah. it's not fun. So, but anyway, that we have a friend who they're both veterinarians, a husband and wife are veterinarians. They have four mm -hmm. children and they bought like, I think they have eight and a half acres. Okay. So they mm -hmm. have a farmette. And Jessica, the wife said to my wife one time when she was saying she'd want to buy some acres, she's like, listen, anytime you want to switch houses with me. We can switch for like six months and you can come out here and fight nature. Oh. And like that's, you know, because like the yeah. grass keeps growing, the shrubs keep growing. There's coyotes that want to eat your sheep. There's like, yeah. and you're fighting nature. It yeah. doesn't do what you want it to, you know. So then did you guys decide that you didn't want to move out to the country anymore? I don't think so. I, yeah. Alexi, I think still has something of a rosy view of what it's like. I mean, I, I would like about two acres. I think I, I want a ton of land. I want to go buy just a crap ton of land. Well, I mean, if you well, don't care if it grows up into the into the wilds, then it's fine. But like yeah. you, you look at these, like so. There's a guy in our church named um, Rick DeYoung, and he owns the Homesteader store. Okay, and he sells like tractors and chainsaws and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. This man makes a good living uh -huh. selling power tools to people yeah, who own acres because yeah. they thought it would be a great idea to own acres, and they want to. But yeah. like without a tractor, good luck. Yeah. Because right. you'll work yourself to death. Right. Yeah. And so people yeah. spend 30, 40, 50, 60,000 dollars on these tractors. Right. And their attachments just so they can keep their land from going crazy. Yeah. Because nature yeah. finds a way and it's not cooperating with you. Well, all you got to do to solve that problem is just pop out a bunch of kids and they can tend to the, tend to the land. Right. And and <laughs> that comes in painful childbearing for the woman. <laughs> right. That's true. So like it's not yeah. easy either way you slice it. 
Right, right, right. So, I mean, the the whole idea of of work. Okay, so God is he's making our work much, much more difficult. I know we had a podcast called, it was about two and a half hours. Maybe it was about two hours called what, what is a man? Um, and I know we're going to do one on, uh, what is a woman? Um, just talking about, we talked about some of these things about like man and laziness and, and work ethic and all these things being part of the fall, uh, is, and as a result of our work, just becoming super difficult that men just seem to just kind of not want to do it like they kind of just want to give up because it's weird because i know that this is a very like it it's weird talking about this in the united states because a lot of my friends are going to go be like engineers or like like finance people or whatever you know somebody working at a desk job and that's difficult to some extent and i do stuff that i kind of i like work a desk job i edit things and do podcasts and it's just not as difficult as as like working the fields or something like that. So, wh- how does this play into our modern? How does it play into our, what we're doing in the modern times in the United States? How do you talk about this with yeah. somebody who's young who doesn't really have to? And the, the people aren't going to like that I say this. Doesn't really have to work hard in with your with in the sense of like with your hands. Like they're not yeah. going out and doing difficult things. Yeah. So first of all, before we get into that, I just want to say that in Genesis eight twenty one, after the flood, mm-hmm. God says, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, that is of Noah's sacrifice and said, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of mm-hmm. his heart is evil from childhood. And mm-hmm. never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long mm-hmm. as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So, mm-hmm. so after the flood... Um, God pulls back his curse on the earth oh. in a way that is not apparently the way it was for the generations of Adam through Noah. Hmm. And so it's important to recognize that, 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 there was a, that, that there was this judicial choice of God. And then after he sees the suffering of people, even though the people aren't better, he still mm-hmm. pulls back the curse as an act of his graciousness and generosity. Mm-hmm. They don't deserve it, but he still does it. So mm-hmm. in that sense, our toil isn't as bad as as like Adam's was or Seth's was. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Relative to, to hard work, I, I think that it is true that a lot of people don't experience it. Like there's not a lot of people who grew up on farms anymore and had to put the hay in in the summer. Or right. like when I was in seminary, um, I dug a basement with my bear, with, you know, like with a pickaxe and shovel for somebody. Mm-hmm. And it was the hardest work I've ever done in my life. And I have never come home so sore and yeah. like wanted to drink so much and like just went to, went to bed. I, I get home at yeah. seven o'clock and go to bed. Right. Yeah. Most people, most professionals have no idea what that's like. Right. Yeah. We, we tend to stress our bodies more than we work our bodies. And that's very different. That's true. Yeah. Um, Cause in some ways the stress is worse for you than the work yeah. for your body. So if you work really hard physically, you'll break down, you, your body will break down. Like you can't do that forever. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you stress yourself, your body will also break down. So there, there is a toil no matter what kind of job you do, but it's just, it's different kinds. But I think that you're right that when people go right from school to college to professional work, right. there can be a kind of flippancy about the kind of hard work that's done to make your life easy. Mm-hmm. And there is a kind of like, let them eat cake attitude of the upper class. Right. Mm-hmm. And people who are like like middle class students who like aren't actually making huge salaries, they don't think of themselves as the upper class. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But they are. And that yeah. that can be a dangerous misunderstanding about their life. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you can buy a coffee at a store, you're in the upper class. 
Right. I mean, yeah. I, mean I should say it this way. If you can buy a coffee at a store and it's financially responsible for you to do so, yeah. then you're in the upper class. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, people, I mean, people think there's, it's funny how many people think everybody goes to college in America when it's still the minority. Is it really? What's yeah. the, what are the Well, it's certainly the say? minority that graduates from college. Yeah. You know, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's, it's not the majority, right? Did you ever see, this has a little bit to do with this, but did you ever see, probably not, Ben Shapiro was on the Joe Rogan podcast and Joe Rogan was bringing up to the point to Ben that more women graduate uh, college than men. And Rogan was kind of like, okay, Shapiro, like that means that women are, are smarter than men. <laughs> and Shapiro like couldn't say that. He was like, he was like, well, it just, it, it just means that, that women, <laughs> women seem to like follow through with things better than men or something like that, or, or they get better education. But it was, it was, it was funny because it was, oh. I felt, it was, I don't know why that reminded me of that. Well, but. I mean, Shapiro's right. I mean, statistically we, I mean, we have done studies on he said that I, the IQs IQ, don't. IQ and G score on women and men and women aren't smarter than men. Right. Women, women there are more smarter women than men. Meaning women's IQs very slightly cluster towards the center. So there's fewer idiot women and there's fewer uh, utter genius women. Genius women. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting, right? But like, yeah. but that's still kind of, I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, hardly anything. You know? I mean, it's, it's funny because, I mean, you can meet a, a lot of the. Yeah. The reason why more women are graduating from college has nothing to do with intelligence. I mean, it has, it has everything to do with jumping through hoops, domestication, yeah. like, following through on things, um, wanting professional jobs. I mean, women want professional jobs. They don't want to, they don't want to kill themselves and they don't really want to be secretaries. Right. So like, what do you do when you go to college? Like, if, well, like the, a, a man can, a man can still like go out and work a hard job and make real money. Right. Right. Um, th that's changed a little bit. There are more women going into the trades, into the trades. Yeah. But, um, I still generally don't think, speaking, it's a lot I don't of, think women are ever going to take over the trades. I just don't no. think they're going to want to do that kind of work. They're going to no. do white collar work. Right. Which is what and, they've been doing. And the universities and the schools are, are definitely more geared towards women in how you like interact. Like, growing up, I always had a difficult time in school, not because I, I, I might have ADHD or something like that. I, I don't know. But um, I just didn't want to sit there for so long and listen to somebody talk to me, like talk at me um, because right. I was a little kid. And I feel like, I always felt like the girls always had such an easy time to just sit there, take in whatever we're doing in math and then get a good um, grade on the test. And I just couldn't do that. I was thinking about recess and all these other things. I was not really thinking about yeah. listening to the teachers. I mean, the classroom is more passive and relational. It yeah. just is. And yeah. um, it's, it's no secret that um, I, I think it's also like the, the place, the, the way we talk about the place of men and women, right? Mm. Um, we just don't really talk about, like when we talk about men, like if you say, do we think men or women are better than men? Most people say, well, no. Right. But if you just listen to the, what we say and what kids hear, when they, especially if they're white little boys, racially, mm -hmm. what you hear is negative stuff. And if you're a black little boy, that's probably true. Just like a slightly different way it's said. Yeah. But you're still hearing like, you know, well, black men are the problem, you know, or like white men are yeah. the problem or like it's right. always men that are the problem, you know, and especially yeah. younger ones. Right. Um, and that women and then like uh, some people who don't like feminism have said um, standard behavior is female behavior, you know, huh. and I think that there's truth to that. Like, yeah, I, I don't have any issue with that. I, so um, but at the same time, I mean, I don't want to like I don't think that's bad. 
that I don't think it's bad that women like certain kinds of jobs and colleges no. are better at training for those kinds of jobs. Right. You know, um, I don't. Yeah, that's all. That's great. I do think it's bad, though, when it starts to turn men, men more into women and, and yeah. more feminine. I mean, that's I just, we've talked about that before in these podcasts, just how men are becoming more feminine. And, and it's I don't think that's good at all. And I think that has I mean, it has I, people say it has to do with like chemicals and all these things that we're put, putting into our body and stuff like that. But I, I think it has a lot to do with what we teach kids as well in the, in school yeah. and how we talk to them about what being a man is. And yeah. I mean, so for example, there's research on men's exercise and which exercises build more testosterone. So -hmm. if you split wood or you punch a punching bag, that builds more testosterone than if you lift a weight. And if you run miles and miles and miles, my understanding is that decreases your testosterone relatively considerably because your body really? takes the signal, right? Cause your body says, Oh, we're going to do repetitive stuff. We're not going to engage in contacts, contact and fighting. Hmm. And so what we need is oh. lean you down. So your body's responding to your impetus, right? So like if men become runners and cyclists, right, mm-hmm. that they're going to have less testosterone than if they're boxing, wrestling, playing football or splitting yeah. wood. Right. Because all of those things have contact in them. Anywhere your body comes into contact with other things, there's this physical combative martial kind of competition and your body huh. generates testosterone in response to it. Right. So I hated weightlifting in high school. Yeah. I was like, this is so dumb, but I loved, I played all the sports. Yeah. Right. And I, you be, I think you become stronger if you punch a punching bag than if you bench press, like in terms of like what, cause like it, it strengthens your tendons and all these other kinds of things and sends a different signal to your body. Now in terms of sheer muscle mass, weightlifting mm-hmm. is better. Like that's why people cross train, right? That's why people do different. Yeah. Like I, like when I exercise, I'll run two miles to start my workout. Right. But then I'm going to get on kettlebells and then I'm going to punch my punching bag and I'm going to do all of it. Right. And in the summer, spring and summertime, I'm going to split a lot of wood because it I want to like do a though, bunch of different things that like weightlifting also just from my perspective, doesn't help me with it. Like doesn't seem to help people with much. Like unless I'm a professional athlete, it's going to help me with that. But like punching a punching bag is going to help me if I, if I piss someone off and they want to fight me or if I get into a fight or or something like that, like at least I'm going to have a little bit of something in my back pocket in case I ever get into like a fight or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I also think one of the reasons why sports are so good for men is it is an outlet for aggression. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I mean, I haven't played basketball for two years because of yep. COVID. Right. Not competitively with other men consistently. And what that has done is increased my stress levels. I've had more symptoms of stress in my life. Mm-hmm. I've struggled with being more combative with people. Right. And basketball is not oh. a huge contact sport. Like you're not like beating the crap out of people, but no. it can be quite physical if you know how yeah. to play it. Yeah. And you are competing and you are yeah. pushing and scratching and pulling and slapping. And, um, yeah. and it just it just takes all the will to kill out of me. You know, and so I think that sports, that's one of the reasons why women's sports are good for women's confidence and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm for women's sports, but it doesn't do the same thing as men's sports. I think it it like helps men not kill each other. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's what it does for women. Well, it's like a different it's like a simulation of war in some capacity, like a yeah. lot of these sports, football, basketball. You're, I mean, you got two sides right. going right up against each other. You got teammates. You got to make strategies and plans and things like that that, right. that can help you win. And it, it feels like like a simu- a war simulation. Right. And it orders one team wins, one team loses. It right. orders competition and cooperation. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have this. We can maybe we can do a podcast on this sometime. I have this document somewhere of 17 reasons Christians just play sports. And I mean, oh. people who have heard me talk a lot know that I am not a fan of the way we do sports. But I yeah. think sports are extremely helpful yeah. when done right. And I have all kinds of reasons why I think sports are helpful for Christian discipleship. 
you know. So, but, Nick, what's – no, sorry. Uh, what's your okay? I get yes. I know, and I agree with you. We should you're, play sports. You're gonna reel us back in to the point of the podcast. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, I was gonna yes. I'll reel us back in. Gosh, oh, there's so many things to talk about. All right, we should do it on sports, but we just shouldn't just stick should. it into this one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's just get back to this curses of the ground. Okay, so one of the things that you do, that we do see though is that Adam will have a difficulty providing and producing good work. And there's, there's, I mean, why is he going to, why is it that God is going to take away his ability to produce good work like so easily? And I know we just talked about how the land is more, the, the, the creation is going to be more difficult to deal with, but what does that mean for his relationships and for his relationship to his wife where Adam can't provide in the way that he should? I mean, is that, does that have something to do with it? Is that more of like a mental thing that God's doing to him? Like you're not going to be able to provide as good. Therefore your wife's going to not be as happy with you and things are just going to be difficult. Partly. I mean, I think it's important to remember too, that um, in, in virtually all of human life, um, men and women both worked and both tended to the home, right? The -hmm. difference was, is that because women were closely bound to birth and children, and part of the function of marriage is children and fertility is women were oriented to the home differently Mm -hmm. than men. Right. So women aren't quote in the home, like barefoot and pregnant or whatever. They're just oriented towards the home. Right. So that Mm -hmm. in the, in the, um, the kingdom of the family, the, the woman is focused inside the gates and the ramparts and the man more outside. But um, women worked with the man outside, right? In, in most places, you have an agricultural family and the woman is working pretty hard. And as yeah. soon as the kids are old enough, they're working pretty hard. Yeah. So um, I think it's important to recognize that like, but the man is the one ultimately responsible. He is ordered to that work and he's oriented outside the home to that provision protection in a way that is, in a, that is more than the woman's because she has an ordering towards the home in a different kind of way. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? So in all of this, so the curse, it's important to recognize that the curse on the woman is a curse on the man mm-hmm. also. And the curse on the man is a curse on the woman also, right? They bear it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's just, everything's going to be harder. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't want to make it too much more complicated than that, right? Everything's right. going to be harder. So like, it's harder to get the job you need. It's harder to provide a good living for your family because the, the man, it's, the man's goal is to provide for himself, his wife, his children, and to have enough to be generous and to show hospitality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. And, of, that's a lot of productivity. Yeah. I mean, if you have four kids, you're being, you're being seven or eight person productive, productive <laughs> enough to take care of seven or eight people. I mean, think about that. Yeah. That's crazy. But right. that's, that's what we ask men to do and have for generations. Well, and also like you ask them to take care if you have, you know, if you have boys and I remember when, when me and my older brother, I mean, I, I had like gone through puberty early and my older brother was in high school and I was like towards the end of middle school and we were eating just an unbelievable yeah. amount of food every, every night. Like we, like my parents thought we were having like a competition to see who could eat more, but like we were, we were in basketball, we were in football track. Like we were in all these sports and we were coming home from two hour practices, weightlifting. And we were, my mom was just like trying to get by just making like pounds of spaghetti. I mean, it, like it, that's on top, like on top of just having to provide for three, three boys and my younger brother too. It's like you to provide for boys who are going through a situation in their life where they're probably going to eat more than they'll ever eat 
ever yeah. again too. So you oh, have yeah. to provide even more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's true. I mean, I, I remember I couldn't believe how much, how many groceries my mom bought when we would go shopping weekly and there were just four of us. I mean, my mom, mom only have two children, right? Oh yeah. 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 I, I mean, I've said to my wife before, I've looked at our grocery bill and I'm like, Alexi, I, I just don't understand how we can spend this much money on food. Yeah. Because I mean, yeah, we have four children, but good Lord, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and her response is Nick, I go to three stores, I shop sales. I can buy less food if you want to eat cheaper food and not show hospitality to people. Yeah. She's, you know, she's like, that's, yeah. you know, that. And I think, yeah. you know, I was just like, well, I don't really want that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's insane. We're doing We we're trying kind of a, car, a carnivore diet uh, <laughs> over here. And so <laughs> we just dropped like a hundred dollars on just meat and eggs. I mean, that's basically what we have in our fridge is just a bunch of uh, ground, ground beef and a bunch of eggs. So yeah, it's hard to have chickens in an apartment. Yeah, yeah, we don't have we don't have chickens. Um, I, was, I was listening to this podcast on Chicago, and it was, it was talking about a bunch of terrible things about Chicago and like how you <laughs> need to clean things up. But anyway, they were talking about um, about neighborhoods going from mm-hmm. black to Latino or white to Latino. Yeah, or, you know, like like Eastern European immigrants and stuff. And they said you can always tell when the when the neighborhood is going Latino because everybody has a chicken coop in their backyard. Really? That's what the guy said. I mean, I've I've never seen that, but. <laughs> That sounds that sounds like that could be right. Yeah, yeah. I would love to have chickens one day. I think that'd be cool. I I mean, it would probably be difficult, but yeah, I it's kind of be become cool. this like in these my suburb. It's become this kind of like upper class white woman thing. Dude, there's a we have a problem. We need to do a podcast on suburban women. I mean, like how the fall has affected them because it seems like there's a different way in which they've been affected, and it's it's not great. Like I, that's happened. Like if there's like things like 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 farming have become like trendy, and you're like. I feel weird about that because I'm like, I don't think farming is like trendy. Like a lot of people had a really difficult time farming throughout history. And this yeah. isn't like a trendy thing to like just take pictures of and be like, yeah. oh, I got my red barn. It's, yeah. It's weird that like farming has become an upper class hobby. Yeah. It's kind of messed up. Yeah. It's like degrading into some yeah. capacity. And yeah. listen, I, I think I, uh, there's actually a, a, a lady at High Point who's doing a PhD in agriculture right now that you might, might be fun to have on to talk about yeah. Christianity and agriculture, but it's yeah. funny. There's like multi, there's like, there's multi agricultures now, right? There's like extreme organics where people are trying to make enough money on a smaller thing of land. There's like big corporational agriculture, which I hate way more than yeah. like upper class white women keeping chickens. I mean, I don't have any problem with that at all. <laughs> My wife is an upper class white woman who has chickens, And I think she, I think she is fantastic. And I like yeah. her chickens just fine. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. However, if you were to do the math at how much we're paying per egg, we're not, it's not a deal. Okay. Yeah. I'm just going to say that right now. Um, so it's, it was, so it is a hobby, right? I like eating fresh eggs from critters that ate our garbage and like, it's very, it's more healthy. It's I, I like that, but we're not making a deal. Like we're not saving yeah. money. Right. Anyway. Um, but then there's people that are like trying to figure out how you can farm profitably on less than 300 acres of land so that it can be a real living for people. And so not everything has to be corporate farming. I mean, there are some really neat things being done in agriculture and being driven in some ways by Christians. And it's kind of funny. There's a, there's a UW professor who wrote this extremely bigoted book against Christians. And he basically was like, this is so dumb because Christians have always been anti-agriculture. But the observation he makes at the beginning of the book is why, why is the, why is the rejuvenation of agriculture on homesteads being driven by like (laughs) 
conservative Christians that vote for Republicans. This well, shouldn't where, be. Like he's, he, he's pissed about it because, but that's what he wants. He wants yeah. the old farmstead to come back, except in a modernized way, in which we pay real money for food, but the food is truly good for us, and it's yeah. coming from local things, and so like markets are more stable and all that kind of thing. But like, it's basically Christians who are fed up with c- cities being so progressive that they believe in nonsense. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, screw this. I'm going to like get back to some real roots and buy yeah. a homestead. And this guy's like, liberals should be doing that. This should be a progressive thing. The thing is like, right. but it's not. It won't. It's, and it, it won't be. It right? can't, I mean, it can't be. And so I don't think it can be in some right. ways. It's because, a kind of wholesome naturalism. So there's this right. guy named Joel Saladin, which if we, you could get him on this podcast, it would be amazing. <laughs> but he's a Christian. <laughs> he's a Christian farmstead leader. Right. About how, like, if you really understand how God made nature, you can have a really viable farm on a few hundred acres of land. And he has this incredibly Christian way of doing it. But he lives amidst fruits and nuts. Like he like his like it's like basically conservative Christians and like wingnut pagan progressive like granola eaters. You know what I mean? And but the thing (laughs) is is like they all get along with each other. Yeah. Because they like they respect each other. They live off the land in this natural relationship with creation and that Mm -hmm. bonds them. And so like even though like their view of salvation is different, a lot of their view about the wholesomeness of life is similar. And so yeah. they have this incredible way to connect with each other that like urban Republicans and progressives don't seem to. Right. And it's really kind of it's really kind of beautiful the way he is. And he's like super anti-government and stuff. Right. But he like but he's so naturalistic, naturally oriented that like I, I mean, I, I think I love this guy. And I, if I had five lives to live, one of them would be I'd try to be his neighbor as a farmer, you know? Well, but, I, it's it's weird to me that the progressives wouldn't want to go live in or that they that they would like that that guy the UW guy was like that we, the progressives should be doing this but like you would have to kind of re reinstate the family unit for that to work which seems to be kind of the 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 reason why it wouldn't really work for progressives is just because there's nobody to work the land if you if you don't have enough people in your family right you have to have a, a man yeah. and a, a, I think a there's, wife there's and, a, I think there's a kind of professional progressive. Mm-hmm. Maybe I shouldn't say progressive, just professional. That doesn't really want to get their hands dirty. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they feel like the ancient Greeks did that manual labor is kind of dirty or they just don't really want to do it. Yeah. Which is interesting because like Karl Marx, who I consider <laughs> the worst kind of progressive, yeah. part of the yeah. reason he was he so believed in communism that it would create a beautiful society is because if we truly had a classless society, everybody would do everything. And so the literary critic would go out and work with the horses and cows and in the field for a couple hours a day. Mm -hmm. And then they'd come in and they'd read literature and they'd do literary criticism. Mm -hmm. And although that offends the basic reality of specialization, that you just can't specialize without spending a lot more time on things. His idea of like having this diverse lifestyle where people would like be out in the field and they could talk about Aristotle whilst Mm -hmm. hoeing. Yeah. Was this beautiful thing that he imagined. Yeah. And, and I'm with him on that. Right. Like there's a certain sense in which like, and that was actually the closest we've ever gotten to that, that I know of is Puritan New England. Huh. Because the Puritans, like they're like in the early days of the Puritans, not later when they lost their faith, but kept their religion, but early when they had less religion and more faith, there was talk of like people going into a cobbler's shop and the cobbler talking about New Testament passages, quoting the original Greek, whilst discussing it with a lawyer who had come to get his shoes fixed. 
Hmm. Because the, the highest rate of literacy ever in Boston was when the Puritans were there. Not when, not even now with like our super progressive society. Yeah. The minute the public took over education in New England, literacy went down. Yeah. But in most places in the country, it went up because literacy was lower. But Puritan culture held literacy so highly that when the public took over education, literacy went down. And literacy in languages, because the average person in Boston could read Latin. Well, I mean, yeah. I, that might be going too far to say the average person, but like a, lot. A, a person who went to school in Boston could read Latin. Do you think the reason why the public public school system er, has, in a lot of ways, throughout the last 200 years in the United States, uh, kind of tarnished our ability to read as well and to have like high literacy rates is do you think that's because if i think about when i was in in school and it was like reading time oh i hated reading time everybody hated reading like they they like do a really good job of making you hate books and now that i'm older i've realized that books are necessary and i need to read them and they're actually fun to read but when i was a kid it was like they made me hate but i don't know how they did it but they made me hate books now i'm frustrated because i'm like i wish i would have read some of these books when i was younger even in high school i should have read some of these books but i just didn't because i hated reading yeah all right i want to get us back to the yeah fallen man but i, I do i think it has to do partly with competition trying to get kids to read earlier and earlier yeah. and earlier. Cause yeah. I think a lot of kids don't mature into like a real passion for reading until they're like 10. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? Or, or like, I mean, I became passionate about reading, I think when I was about 13. Really? Yeah. And it's cause I read a, a series of fantasy novels that I enjoyed reading. You yeah. Know? Um, I don't, I, I don't have a solution now for a competition with electronics. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think like, you know, trying to teach kids to read at four, I think, is probably a fool's errand. I think we should be teaching kids how to be good children. Yeah, yeah, you know? that makes and, sense. That, and that's why I don't think, and I don't think public schools are very good for that. I think public schools have a negative effect on the behavior of children and their formation as good people. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't really know what the solution is. But I'm not sure public education should start until maybe second grade. But that's oh. just a whole. That's just a whole different. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not saying it shouldn't quote shouldn't happen, but I think that the moral bankruptcy of the public system is such that it can't do it. It can't yeah. form children into good little children, and because it can't it has doesn't have the moral will to do it. Right. Um. I don't. I think that that's the main thing children should be taught. We should do a full podcast on education and how Christians okay. should educate their kids. Um. Yeah, okay. Go- you, okay. I'm gonna write that. I'm gonna, you need to get Monty Kinnetter on for that one. Okay. Well, yeah, right, give me the name. Um, the so moving back into the curse. Um, and you talked about how the curse, the cur- You kind of talked a little bit about how the curse on the woman is a curse on the man too, and vice versa. Like you know, whoever is cursed, it affects the other person, which is also right. another part of the curse. Um, but I mean, do you want to say anything else about that? Yeah, I mean, you could say a lot, but I, th- I think it's important to recognize that, like, what I said this before, but um, the the time of human life in which women didn't work where there was like these things called housewives is mm. actually really short, right? Yeah. So it wasn't even thinkable until the industrial revolution, but it wasn't really practical until the fifties and sixties, like in, mm-hmm. in the late fifties, early sixties, there was this revolution in American society towards consumption where like one, a one person working could make enough money for people to buy luxuries. And it was a really short time period. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then what happened is women went into the workforce and there was a drop in the, the, the regulated value of work 
because we had this glut of workers because we got all these women in the workforce, right? Yeah. And because of, other, because of a number of other things too, right? Mm-hmm. And what happened was is that to maintain the standard of living that one person could earn reasonably easily with a relatively low level of education than in 1956, now it really was taking two workers and also like two workers were driving the price of everything up and inflating costs. Huh. And so what happened is you got two workers working, but you weren't making anything close to twice as much. You're making like 120%. Which is like so not worth it, right? But anyway, that's what happened when women. I, I mean, I I want to say women were tricked into the workforce, but I don't I don't want to. I like I think women working is great, but like the, what was sold to men and women in America and what happened were completely different things. I mean, I, I agree. I think it's fantastic if women work, although it does seem to me like like across the board, like the in the United States at least, yeah, the kind of the downfalls of women in the work, women working, um, gen- like a lot of women working, more women working in the United States. There's been, it feels like there's been way more downfalls. There's been way more negatives to come from that than positives. And so obviously you don't want, I mean, it's, it's the worst thing in the world nowadays. If you're like a man and you're like, well, women shouldn't work because everybody thinks you're like a sexist, but yeah. I don't know if they I don't know if they should. I, it feels like all the numbers and statistics would say it actually like for their happiness and for um what, whatever like for their happiness, for production, for income, for all these things that it would actually be better that way. And so it's difficult for me to just be like yeah, maybe women should work. Like it doesn't feel yeah. right. Well, yeah. So I think, okay, so let's differentiate between work and employment, first of all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So women have always worked and always will work. So, so will men. And yes. And so the question is, is it advantageous for women and men and their children and families for women to spend the majority of their time oriented towards employment? Right. 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 And, and I think that there are, there are some negatives, like you're saying. Right. Mm-hmm. I think I think for women to have autonomy. I, I also think that women being more concerned about their employment is is partly necessary as divorce became more thinkable in America. Yeah. As women became more prone to be abandoned by men, right. they had to be more careful about their own ability to make an income towards relative to employment. And so I th- I think that the increase in the willingness of men to abandon women in a legally positive way um, has created a lot of this too. You know, yeah, I, I also think that like, and this is driven up unemployment rates, but like, like the the incentivization of of single motherhood too has has driven uh, maybe not divorce rates, but like non married rates or people who just are not getting married, right? Like it's you know, there's there's the incentive. I mean, you can make. I don't know if I said this in this podcast before, but you can, you know, in Minnesota, unemployment, you can make $30,000 a year in unemployment. Isn't that, that's $10,000 more than any, any of the neighboring states. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. I mean, that's, ten, that's, me and Andrea were on, on is that, unemployment. is that all, is that, is that just unemployment or is that all different benefits combined? I believe. I mean, maybe it is. I, I believe it is just unemployment, but I can recheck into that. But yeah. I, what I do know is that people are moving to Minnesota from all around the country um, who don't want to work, and so we're actually losing a lot of businesses because nobody's working. It's, it's it, the economy is taking a huge hit, and it's and it's not good. People are moving down south who actually have businesses and want to work, and then the people who don't want to work are moving here because we're handing out a thirty, uh, however much it ends up being, a pretty sizable 
paycheck for people not working, which is which was just blew my mind when I heard that. Did you say that's unemployment or like a welfare? Um, it's, it's a welfare, it's, it's welfare. Um, yeah. So, so anyway, um, I, I don't want people listening to this to think mm-hmm. that as a antidote to feminization, yeah. what I think the res- what we think as Christians is that the, the antidote to that is masculinization, no. right? Yeah. I, I think that part of the, the issue here is, and there's, there was a question asked that I wrote some notes on this for below, but, um, part of the issue is. Um, I think that we sell, we undersell the home and we oversell employment. Yeah. And I think that's something that, that when you're a kid, if you're a young woman or a young man, you don't really understand that. You think that work is going to be this like really exciting, like life giving thing. And you think the home is going to be this yeah. like trap. And especially if you are kind of a brat of a kid, like why would you want to do that and so on? Right. But like employment is a toil. Yeah. I mean, scripture says that like, it's hard work and the the man works himself to death. I mean, he toils in the field, so mm. to speak, to provide for the home, which is a place of beauty and rest. Right. And to say that a woman has the right and privilege to be oriented towards the place of beauty and rest, but also the responsibility to make it a place of beauty and rest while um, the man it has the primary orientation of labor and defense, so to speak, mm-hmm. is it's not like, oh, you know, I mean, the, the, what got sold to women in second wave feminism, like first wave feminism was women are as good as men, right? Mm-hmm. That was correct. Second wave feminism is women don't need men and women can do what men do. Now, obviously, that's an oversimplification. I'm sure there's some women studies people listen to be like, that's not what that's not what happened. OK, <laughs> you're right. That's not totally what happened. The, the, the problem is, is, though, what is the effect on the popular mind of the public? Yeah from a movement, right? Sure. And the pop, the effect on the popular mind from first wave feminism on the public of Western mm-hmm. humanity was women are as good as men. And that was correct. Because right. you, yeah. you, you can only do about a sentence with a movement, right? Right. Um, yeah. So then, and then, then for second wave, it's we don't need men. Yeah. Whereas we, we can do what men can do when we don't need them, right? Men, that men was are not, trash. <laughs> right. That was not a good idea. Yeah. Right. That was a bad idea. Yeah. And, and it undermined the beauty of the home, the beauty of yeah. family, the beauty of hospitality, the beauty of forming community and communal living and interpersonal deep relationships, close listening, having time for people, right? We all just got in what um, Shawshank Redemption called a big damn hurry. Yeah. Right. And in doing so, we lost our humanity. And see, part of what the reason was, is that women were the controllers and the protectors of that beauty. Mm-hmm. And they sold it for the, to use the biblical metaphor, a pot of porridge mm-hmm. so that they could be like men and toil with them in the degrading and unrewarding mm-hmm. world of employment. Right. Mm-hmm. And now I'm not saying employment can't be rewarding. It can't be great. It yeah. can be. But most people don't love their job. Yeah. In, in the whole men. world. In the, in, in, the whole world. in the whole world. And yeah. especially men. Especially yeah. men who have families. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, what, what I see with um, professional couples, especially like suburban and urban professional couples in America, is you have a guy who works a job that makes real money. Mm-hmm. And that's his main focus. He's trying to kick butt. And so he gets some personal satisfaction from kicking butt. But he has to bring home the bacon. Okay. Like yeah. he has to make money. The woman off then has the leisure to work in employment, but has more leisure to choose what she wants to do. And what she'll normally pick is something that's meaningful, 
mm-hmm. which is ordered to her nature because what she's doing now is looking at society and the city more as she would have a hundred years ago, her family. Mm-hmm. And she's saying, what is necessary to make this place where we live better, more beautiful, mm-hmm. more good. Right. And so they well, tend to stream into the human professions like social work and yeah. psychology and counseling. Well, one of the good examples and- that I know of this is um, that I think of is uh, Jill Risa. Like she, she seems to be somebody who takes very seriously her mothering role, being a mom and, and is with her kids, but she's also like starting a business right now and um, going to school for, I can't, for something, social work, social work to, be really, a counselor, yeah, right? to be a counselor and doing that kind of thing. But when I think of Jill, I don't think of, I don't think of like a business, a business person. I just think of somebody who's a, who like, I, it feels like her primary focus is her children. And that's what I feel about her. Yeah. And, th- but yet she has a very, she's a very productive person, even outside of that. Like she's going to create this counseling mm-hmm. thing and do this Christian counseling stuff, which is great. So I definitely think, um, that that is a, that's a great thing. I think that she's a great example of that. Um, I, I do want to talk about this that you have written down here is that both men and women will have to face the curse, not only, not only to live, but also to be saved. You say that God doesn't curse sin. He curses creation. It's kind of the, the weird thing here is, is too, when talking about the fall is that it doesn't seem like God like chooses to like implement sin. Or anything like that. He doesn't like implement sin into 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 creation. No. Sin is itself sin existed. Curse. Yeah, sin is so created by his creation, and he, it is itself a curse. Right? So, like that's the question, though, because it seems right. Like sin was in the garden to some capacity because Satan was was in the garden. Um, yeah. So like that, then does God just allow for for that sin for for the whatever Satan is and whatever sin is he just allows that now in creation and in men and women he allows it to affect everything else. i mean allows it to affect everything like that's a very weird concept and people don't think about that sin was there before before yeah. the fall well yeah i mean the 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 belief in the satan or an accuser or an evil one that's spiritual rather than human yeah um just takes the question a step further back. Okay. So if you say, well, why was there sin in the garden? And you're like, well, yeah, there was Satan was in the garden. Okay. Yeah. Why was Satan in the garden? Like how did, how did a sinner and therefore sin come about in the first place? And so mm-hmm. the, the assumption is, is that, and there's not a lot said about this in the Bible, but that God created the angelic beings mm-hmm. with reason. And in that sense, they are in the image of God in oh. certain ways. Right. And so the capacity to sin exists as part of a being being ordered to reason. Hmm. Right. That is hmm. that a being ordered to reason has has a will, has free will hmm. and can have provident emotions. And that creates the ability that triumvirate reason, will and emotion creates the ability to make a choice that is willful, that is self-centeredly willful and against what creation is ordered to, to put yourself above where you're supposed to be, to choose to be the God yourself. Right. And that that was the sin of Satan. Or, mm-hmm. or that it, I shouldn't say that it's the sin of Satan, not because it was special, but because that's the nature of all sin. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so even if you back up the question of sin of Satan, you're still in the same place. God doesn't create sin. He creates a creature capable of good. And in creating a creature capable of good, a creature capable of creating evil. When he makes a non robot, when he makes a chooser, then that thing can choose. Mm-hmm. And one of the things it can choose is evil and evil is itself a curse. God adds pe- an additional 
judicial right. curse to creation. <clears throat> but as the Bible unfolds, what we find is, is that that curse isn't just a curse, but a test. And that so, is different than sin. Sin is just a curse. It's nothing but death. And it's just a curse. God's curse on creation is a curse that is also a test and a forming trial. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason we know that is he actually commands us to fight it. When he tells us to be charitable, to bind up people's wounds, to help one another, all the things he tells us to do is to keep taking dominion over the chaos of creation and the curse. We are supposed mm-hmm. to undermine his own cursing and mm-hmm. he helps us do it, mm-hmm. which shows he doesn't find it impious for us to fight the curse. He requires and helps us do it. So the yeah. curse is more than just punishment. It's a trial and it's a test and it's a formative hardship. Yeah. That's gosh, that's <laughs> it's very there's like so many I mean directions that we could go from there because I mean there's there's a lot of points that you make about God creating choosers and there's a whole group of people that are be like, okay, but we can't choose good. So did he, so then do we have the choice and that kind of thing? But, but I do, yes, I think that that was a good answer for this. When, when you're talking about uh, what, what do you, I mean, what do you mean that God doesn't curse sin? Because you're saying that because curse, the curse is sin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah curse is or a sin. sin is or sin a curse. Is a curse. Yeah, I mean, sin, is, a sin curse. is inherently a curse. There's there, yeah. like uh, to curse something means to curse something that isn't a curse. Like, yeah. you're, like you're cursing yeah. something good. If you curse a person, you're like, I curse you with infertility, right? Yeah. You're cursing something that's right. good with something that's bad, right? So the things that are cursed are the ground, man, women, childbearing, like the, these things that were abstract that were not, they, they weren't, they weren't abstract. I mean, they were outside of the realm of the curse. And now the cur- curse be- like comes into them. In, I, the in the most important thing to understand about the curse relative to what gets cursed is the thing about which men and women are supposed to take dominion is the very thing that gets cursed. So be fruitful and multiply, take dominion in the earth. Yeah. Taking dominion over the earth, the earth now is not in subjection and is cursed and is fighting you. Hmm. Be fruitful and multiply, that is, be fertile and have children, create more godly offspring, more humans in the in the earth, right? More image bearers. Mm-hmm. Now, childbearing is cursed with pain and difficulty, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and even with infertility, like that you can't mm-hmm. even do it, right? Yeah. And those are the themes that what God told us to do, what is our right duty and naturally ordered good, is the thing he made harder in the curse. So he made, what he did was he made godliness more difficult, <laughs> Right. Yeah. But because, and you're like, why would he do that? Well, part, there's two reasons. One is he wants us to really be formed into godliness, but two, godliness is happiness and health, what Jesus calls life, right? All through John, Mm -hmm. he says, what I'm trying to give you is life. Mm -hmm. Well, if God curses the good, what does he curse? He curses life. If he curses life, what is he cursing? Well, he's cursing the thing that brings life, which is exactly what he told human beings to do in the first place, because he's good. Mm-hmm. He commanded them to do something good. And so now if he's going to curse the good, he's going to curse, curse precisely what he commanded them to do. Yeah. Right. It must be that way. It's not arbitrary. Right. Right. Okay. So that, that makes sense. So gosh, man, the, the sin, I feel like this is I'm talking about sin for the last two episodes has in some ways, like I understand how, how com- I, I don't understand <laughs> how com- complex sin is, but it makes you think about how much more complex this is than I could even imagine just in talking about sin, which I think is important that we can talk about. We should talk about now just 
how how seriously should we take all like how, how seriously should Christians think about sin and the curse and how it's affecting us um, personally because there's there's ways in where I think Christians can read through Genesis and they can read about the curse and they can read about Adam and Eve and blah 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 and they can be like oh yeah that happened to them and then not really notice how that's happening to us too right now yeah and so how can we look at these scriptures and be like okay so this is what happened adam this is a result of the curse why is this a result of the curse and then and then because it's a result of the curse for adam how is this a result for myself so for for men how can we do how can we deal with it it feels like i have to think about 50 million things at once because sin is so freaking all over the place and it's like what am i supposed to do about that yeah, so I think I think it's first to make the point for men and women that we are going to be called to do things that aren't the ordering of our natural selves that are difficult. Mm-hmm. So you could say, well, if ch- having children is going to be difficult, right? If fertility is going to be difficult, if bearing children is going to be difficult, if nursing children, if raising children is all going to be difficult, then I just won't have any. Yeah. Or I won't have very many. Right. And that's how we get extinction birth rates, which is what we have in the Western, in all industrialized countries of every racial group, is non-replacing birth rates. So the human race is going extinct, right? Now, that doesn't mean we will go extinct, right? There might be a point where we're like, well, we need to make some humans here, right? Or like, you know, we're losing the world population. We need to re-substantiate it. As long as like China and India, I I don't, like, they they don't have a, they have a higher birth rate than death rate, both China and India and a lot of the Eastern. They do, but they don't have a replacing birth rate. That is, oh. the average woman is having fewer than two children, right? So with, with near perfect healthcare, uh, you need to have two point three human sure. beings per woman to just okay. stay where you're at, right? Yeah. Okay. And neither China nor India have that birth rate. Interesting. Okay. So right. in so the United not, States, what are we at? It's not just uh, we're like at two, so okay. just under it. But okay. if you divide America out by racial groups and by immigrant groups, yeah. or even worse, so white non-immigrant Americans are well below two. Wow. But like, basically, it's Latino immigrants that are floating us right now. <laughs> what are and they? What are they at? Like, some of them are as high as four. Like, some oh, wow. groups are as high as four. Yeah. So, which is great, you know. Yeah. So we're getting a lot of Latinos, but we're like white people are just not choosing to perpetuate themselves. Yeah. You know. Let's see, I mean, it's that makes sense. I mean, I feel like that. I mean, do you think that the result that, that the reason for that is selfishness? I mean, at the core is just selfish. Like, I don't, I, I've so, I know so many young people are just like, I don't, I don't want to have kids. Like I couldn't bring a kid into this world yeah. or something like, I think that's, yeah. I think that part of it is a misunderstand, a misunderstood, a, sorry, a misguided view of environmentalism, right. Huh. That you should bring more people into a polluted planet. Yeah. I think some of it may be motivated by white guilt. I don't want yes. to bring more evil people into the world. It's kind of like the the Hollywood version of Noah, right? We want to yeah. get rid of all the humans because they're terrible. Um, and white people are the worst, right? Uh, yeah. I think that it's it's partly just the selfishness of wealth. Huh. Um, what, what, what really happened was this. When human beings got the technologies to control births, they did. Hmm. So what that tells me is, is that fertility was always something that happened because we couldn't stop it or didn't decently think that we could. But do you one, think that once that's, we got the technologies used, we did, and that, and when I say we, I mean human beings, because it's true in every racial group, every culture, everywhere. Yeah. Do you think that we couldn't control? I mean, we've had this conversation too before. Andrea and I got married. I was, um, I don't, I mean, I'll just tell the story because I don't think it's that crazy, weird to tell it, but maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> um, we, I was kind of like, 
I do not want to use birth control because I don't think that this is, I don't think this is natural. And I don't think that it feels like throughout all of almost most of human history, the majority of the people were not using birth control. And like, that was something about themselves that they couldn't control. And that God was in control of whether they had kids, whether they didn't have kids, what happened in that situation. And I was kind of, I, I've, and I still feel that way today, but we have like ended up being that, you know, we, Andrew and I sat down and talked with you and, and decided that obviously we'd use birth control. Um, but I still feel some of those similar ways about this. Like, it feels like we're trying to take control out of God's hands. And yeah. that seems like a result of the fall as well. And us going and trying to take control out of God's hands and eating the fruit like that. That's yeah. what Adam and Eve did to some capacity. Yeah. I mean, it's important to recognize that taking control out of God's hands and eating the fruit was to go against an explicit verbal command. Right. So I don't, I don't think the implicit, the implicit command, I mean, this is where Roman Catholics, I think get astray is they, they produce fully explicit commands of God from, um, from inferences they make from things in scripture. Right. And so if God says be fruitful and multiply, then that means we can't do anything to decrease the rate of multiplication. Therefore we should not use any birth control. Right. Um, so I think I think that there are two ends of the spectrum. And I don't want to call them extremes because I don't think that they're extreme. I think that they're just different ends of the spectrum of reasoning. One is mm-hmm. that um, fertility is a gift of God and we should just allow it to take its course. The second is that fertility is something that we can manipulate with technology and have the right to, to transcend our humanness in ways that we choose. So in some ways, birth control is one of the first forms of transhumanism. Right. I want to transcend yeah. my nature. That is, I want to make myself artificially infertile so that I can have sex without consequences mm-hmm. and I can have sex that isn't ordered to fertility. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that both of those are wrong. Right. I think that there's an emphasis on fertility that God wants godly offspring. But at the same time, wisdom dictates that a healthy woman is going to get pregnant every two years. Like, that's just going to happen. And sometimes mm-hmm. more frequently than that. So if you do nothing and you say, well, it's in God's hands, well, it's in God's hands in that it's in nature's hands mm-hmm. that God has created. And she's going to have a kid every two years until she hits menopause, mm-hmm. which means the birth rate for the average woman in that case is going to be somewhere between 12 and 15 children. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Unless she has a major medical problem, which she can no longer have children. Right. Mm-hmm. And so does that mean that God's will is for every woman to have more than 10 children? Right. And I don't, I don't think so. I I don't, I don't think that because nature would cause that, that that's what we should embrace. But here's the problem. We have not proven as a human race, we have been proven untrustworthy with the technology, technological capacity to take dominion over birth and still embrace fertility. So, but wait, Nick, if if, this is, so if if somebody has a capacity to do something, Mm -hmm like create 12 children or if if you know somebody has a capacity to write like you know 50 books about whatever like if god's given the capacity to a man and a woman for different things and they're both they both could be extremely productive and good for the world having children and let's say your capacity is that you could you know plant five churches or whatever but mm-hmm. you don't do what, what if you don't live up to that like yeah it might not be a sin to not live up to the capacity per se but it also seems like it's not taking seriously what god has created you for you specifically like somebody might have the capacity for less somebody might have the capacity for more but why would i not try to to squeeze out all of what god has created me to be rather than try to put restrictions on that First of all, I just want to say I love the squeeze out pun. 
when we're talking about childbirth. <laughs> um, but I think that, so I think that I actually think that that's a Greek fallacy or maybe not Greek, but an industrialized fallacy that like we, if we can do more, we should, you know, um, I'm not sure that being more productive, if you can be, is God's goal. I think God's, I mean, part of the idea of the Sabbath is he demands we not be as productive as we could be for the sake of rest. Which, um, which, which ultimately produces more productivity though. Don't you say like rest and I mean, that, that can ultimately produce that stuff though. Like it, it doesn't all these things, these well, commands. I don't know that if God- that's true. I, I, th- I don't know if that's true, Andy. I think because I think the, so I, I do think that that is one way to think about rest, that you can mm-hmm. do more if you don't kill yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the lives of people who overwork, in many cases, they do produce more than the lives of people who don't. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen this in pastoral ministry, right? Like in, in a place where you wouldn't think it would be the case, but my colleagues that overwork um, and are talented grow bigger churches than people who have limits. Mm-hmm. I mean, I struggle with that myself. Like for me to have limit, every time I find I limit myself for my family, I can see the decrease in productivity at the church. Like mm-hmm. less happens. Now it may be that like all that activity isn't producing anything spiritually. Right. But if you look at things like businesses and stuff like that, people who are successful tend to work really, 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 really hard. And people with no limits who are equally talented tend to get more done. Part of the reason why God says don't do that is because you're not supposed to work everybody else as a slave. Right. He's like, that's why you have to let your cattle, your ox and your donkey rest on the Sabbath. But part part of the deal with being a pastor is that you have to tend to your family first, like the, the, the requirements in the Bible, you know, if, if your kids aren't obeying you and that kind how, of thing. How is that different from a banker? What do you mean? Do you think, no, uh, do you think that God's will for a man who's a banker or a woman no, who's a banker yeah. is for them not to tend to their family quote first? No, I think that it, that, that it is definitely to tend to their family first, but you're like, you can be like, you can technically be a banker and if your family is out of line, like there's not some sort of spiritual requirement that your family has to be in line be, to be a banker. If you're a pastor or an elder, you got you have to have your family in line. Like that's that's a requirement from God in the in the scriptures. And so, if you do, if you take more time to try to build your church up at the at the expense of your family, then what you're doing is you're actually tearing your church down, anyways. Like like without even thinking, right? Like without even trying, because yeah, in a in a way. But at the same time, think about this: the qualifications for an elder in First Timothy three and Titus chapter one are the qualifications of godliness in the rest of the New Testament. Like sure. when you pick somebody in your church to be an elder, you're picking from among the bankers and yeah, clerks and maintenance men and so on. Yeah, and the thing you're choosing is the ones who have in one part of it, put their family first. That is the order. They've ordered their family well and loved and cared for their family. Well, otherwise right. how can they love and care for the church? Well, right. Is what yeah. it says in the scriptures. So, um, I think it's important to recognize that like in that sense, if we take a truly historical view of what an elder is, an elder is an exemplary Christian. Yeah. And a Christian is by definition, not somebody who's professionally, professionally Christian. There's somebody who is like mm-hmm. vocationally something else. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that, yeah, I so I, I think it's important to recognize that um that all men will have to face the question of limitation. And yeah. I th- I think it's okay to face the question of limitation in, in reference to fertility. And that's partly because it's not just how productive can I be, but it's like but like for example, I could be productive in let's say twenty-five different things in my life. Yeah. I could be productive in friendship, I could be right. productive in 
caring for my wife and enjoying her. Like, is right. my job just to care for Alexi or is my wife to, in, my, is my work with Alexi to enjoy her and yeah. be there with her? Right. Right. Well, all that stuff is like, I could be more, quote, more productive doing other things. What is productivity? Right. Is of course the question that comes up here. Mm-hmm. And so I think <laughs> when it comes to children, right, the more children you have, the more work that is, the more right. expense given to it, the less you can be generous outside of your family, the less freedom you have to attend to work and so on and so forth. The more right? you got to stretch yourself thin to make all these things to be right. quote unquote productive and Right. I think if you have 10 kids, you probably shouldn't be doing much more than that. Yeah. Whereas if you're you're a couple that marries in is, is, let's say, let's say you're just infertile, like you're, you're married, you're infertile. Right. Mm -hmm. And so probably the woman and the man are both going to be employed. Yeah. Probably they're both going to be able to take leadership responsibilities and do all kinds of things because they don't have to attend to children. Right. Well, that my one of my questions here, Nick, about the fall of men is, it feels like there's two ends of the spectrum, and one of them is that in in relation to work, a lot some men are extremely lazy and they don't want to work, and they and and then they become passive, and then the women take take on that responsibility and they provide for everything and they lead everything, and then it becomes kind of a mess in that way. And then like something that I've struggled with is like when, what is a good when do you stop? Like, at what point do 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 you stop working? And when I say working, like working towards like my job or like you know I'm trying to like build company and that kind of things. So like, what when at what point do, do I stop? What's the? I, it's difficult for me to think about because I'm like if I if I work a ton right now, then like maybe later on I won't have to work as as much as everybody else. Although. If you usually, if you just like create that habit, you're probably just going to keep going and going and going and going. But yeah. at what point do you stop as a man? Because I feel like there's the, the other end of the spectrum is that there are men who are just complete like machines and they just get things done and they love doing it and that's all they want to do. But that as a result, they end up neglecting their family and neglecting their wife. And yeah. that becomes a whole issue too. Yeah. I mean, well, this becomes one of those areas where men should be listening to the voice of their wife. Yeah. Because their wife is often speaking for God, right? She's yeah. not asking them to disobey God or go against his command. She's asking him to fulfill his God's command, right? Yeah. I also think a man needs to recognize that what is the garden that he's causing to grow? And the primary one is his wife, his wife's life, yeah, um, his own godliness and his family. And then his responsibility to the wider community in which he's seeking to be productive and help mm-hmm. in its flourishing. Um, I, think, I think that's critical. Right. So to go back, I want to wrap a little bit of a bow, not a bow, but like just tie up a little bit this, the fertility thing. Cause I think we just got oh. the big asterisk in the middle of it there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, what I, what I think is, is that we need to, ag- I agree with the, the Roman Catholics that a attitude of hospitality towards receiving new life is fundamental to a godly marriage. Mm-hmm. And so that means does, if you get married, you are agreeing to have children if possible and that your life together is ordered towards receiving of new life which means you're going to have children if you can, if, if God gives you that gift and um, that you shouldn't be capricious um, or arbitrary about saying, well, I'm going to limit it however I feel like. Right. Mm-hmm. And so generally speaking, what that means relative to our, how the fall has affected us in selfishness to reject that life is if you just listen to your heart about how many kids you want to get, there's going to be some flesh in there and it's going to be about half the number you might want to have. You might really want to have if you were listening to the nature God gave you to take dominion and to be fertile. Mm 
and multiply. Mm. And so generally speaking, the average person is going to say, and I think what that sounds like in this culture is they'll say two. Because mm-hmm. the idea yeah. of having an only child, I think, is just not that appealing to most people. They want to have two, and so that's what they have because it's right. not an only child. And I just encourage Christians to just open their mind a little bit more on that and maybe start with the number three or four and start thinking and talking with their spouse about that mm-hmm. and consider what they might want to do. I actually think two is – it's not too few. It's fine to have two kids. But yeah. um, just for, for from a factual perspective of the survival of our species, mm-hmm. every third woman is going to have to have three or more. And that's if every yeah. other woman can have two and with people getting married at like 34 and not having yeah. children until 37, a lot of women who thought they were going to have two aren't going to have two. Right. right. And so. Um, Probably not going to have one in a lot of yeah, circumstances. So, so I really encourage men and women because women, women, I think a lot, like a lot of women I've talked to have said, I had one more in me. And it really is the men and how supportive men are in having one more child that leads women to be like, well, I didn't, I decided to just not push it. Yeah. But like the the woman actually, actually wanted one more, right? Cause she knows like when she's 60, you know, yeah. she'd love to have three kids, not two. Right. right. And so on. So, mm-hmm. um, I, but I also think that there's a lot, I've met a lot of women who had one more in them indefinitely. So there's some women who just like childbirth isn't that hard for them. They do inherently like children. Yeah. They're ordered to femininity in that kind of way. And mm-hmm. those women would be happy to have seven or 10. Yeah. And yeah. at some point, I think it's okay for God to be like, darling, we have six <laughs> or like four children. Yeah. Um, I am concerned about providing for us and like having right. a relationship and things like that. I, I knew a guy not that many years ago who he was a guest in our house and they had had three children. And he said to his wife who wanted to have another child, he said, he said, um, I am afraid that if we have another child that I could fall into an affair Oh, because oh. I, I don't think I'm that strong and I'm getting almost none of you right now. Hmm. And I, I just, I'm afraid that I'm going to bond with another woman. Cause I, we just can't, we're not, we're not bonding with each other enough the way we're raising our three children mm-hmm. and the way we're making time for each other. And she, he's like, I don't, I don't want to limit us, but I, I don't want to ruin us either. And yeah. I just, I, I fear that we're going to hit a limitation of mine. And she was, she accepted it. I mean, on one level you'd be like, well, that's a terrible thing to say to your wife. But like, she was like, yeah, you know, I can understand that. And I love you. Mm-hmm. And so she limited herself based on that. So like, there's all kinds of ways in which these dynamics are going to function. But I think you need to start with, we human beings have not been virtuous in having the control over our fertility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We need to start with that and that you're part of the human race. And then secondly, God's posture is for us to be re- hospitable to the receiving of new life. Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, you are a free steward. Mm-hmm. Like God has put it in your hands to choose. You can choose, right? You can't choose to kill a child once conceived, but you can choose to um, decide, okay, we're going to have four kids. Now, mm-hmm. the, the, I, we have to have a whole other podcast on whether or not um, making yourself permanently infertile is ethical. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Yeah. We, we have to have a podcast on a lot of different things that relate yeah. to. Because some people how- just assume it's fine. And I, I'm a little mixed on it. I think it's probably okay. But I'm not as certain as some people are about it. Also, some of the methods of having a baby. 
that yes. we should probably talk about it at some point because true. that yeah. gets freaking nuts. And a lot of Christians don't want to be like, you probably shouldn't do that because right. it will kill like six babies in the process or something like that. Or, you know, yeah. like that. And so, and, and I, I've never heard anybody really push back on that. I know mm-hmm. there was, I don't know if you saw this. Do you know who Dave Rubin is? Mm-hmm. He, uh, he works for the blaze. He's a conservative, uh, news commentary guy and he's he's gay and he him and his husband are like having two kids i guess with a surrogate mm-hmm. and ali best stucky who's a i don't know if you know her do you know her mm-hmm. yeah she kind of made a video about it and just she was one of the only people all the other conservatives and christians were like congratulations this is fantastic and she was the only one that was like yeah i don't think this is good and she's friends with with dave but i haven't heard many t- christians actually talk about some of these like and that's a different scenario because because they're you know they're you know gay which already takes away i mean part of the issue with the ruben thing is that and this is this is one of the issues with gay marriage in general is is that it's a good and an evil like Hmm. the, the like commitment one to another in full monogamous union and making the other person's life your own and your life someone else's is is like friendship a, an inherently beautiful thing? Yeah, but it's disordered to nature in terms of God's creation. So, in one sense, it's a profound good; in another sense, it's a profound evil. Right? Same thing with them having children surrogately in that way. Right? Yeah. On, on one level, the rece- the creation and reception of children is an inherent good, mm-hmm. but doing it in the way they've ordered it, like so, the child will not be raised by both both of his or her biological parents in close proximity of the heterosexual family and so on. That's a profound evil, right? And so yeah, in one sense, yeah. they're doing, they're embracing goods, goods that are supported by having, like yeah, the family, right. having children right. being committed to each other. Yeah. But they're doing it in a way not ordered to reason nature and God's commands, which is. Allie Beth made a, she made a great point that it also, it, it takes, it takes away the ability for a child to obey the command of honoring your mother and father. It, yeah. it, it, they can't. They literally can't do it from the beginning because they don't have a mother. Yeah, I, I, but I think that that's bound up in the other objections of that a, a child is not being raised with their two biological parents, which is the, the child's right. It's a human right of children to be raised by both of their biological parents whenever possible. And so to yeah. create a child which that's not in, ever intended, sure, I think is right. is a bioethical immorality, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the result of that is that the child doesn't have a mother in this case and mm-hmm. can't honor her mother, it, yeah. which is the presumption of that command, right? Yes. Right. The assumption of the command is that you've already have a family order to nature and therefore yeah. then you can honor your father and mother. Right. 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 That makes yeah. sense. Let's so circling back. Um, so we can close this thing out on um, the fall of, of, of men or how the fall has affected men. Um, I, I think we should end it with talking about what we have written down here is that men will find their spiritual responsibilities We'll find that their spiritual responsibilities will feel like statesmanship. Um, what does that mean? And I guess how can Christ, how can Christian men be responsible for spirit, their you know their yeah. spiritual leadership and yeah. That? So okay, so yeah. So there's a few applications that I propose for this. One is is that the relationship between men and women is ordered to nature. It's not arbitrary. I'll okay. spare you the someday. I want to do a rant on what social construct means, but we'll save that for another time. Okay. So, but there's a natural relationship between men and women and it's gotten more difficult, Mm -hmm. 
But see, in each case, the fall makes something beautiful and good that we must receive as part of salvation in our natural life that is now more difficult, but we receive it all the more. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the complementary relationship between the man and the woman has gotten harder and it's still incredibly worthwhile and we have to embrace it all the more, right? Mm-hmm. The man's relationship to work has gotten harder. It's become toil. It's difficult, but we have to embrace it all the more, right? Mm-hmm. A woman having children has become painful and difficult and sometimes impossible. And yet it's worth embracing all the more. So all yeah. these things that are ordered to nature that are now harder, men and women together embrace all the more. Does that make sense? And so mm-hmm. the curse becomes a trial and a a hardship that makes us, that God uses to make us godly through his grace mm-hmm. because we receive it. And so he then lessens the curse and allows us to overcome his own curse by his own help when we mm-hmm. do so. Okay. Real quick. So, it just, it seems so hard to imagine a world in which God doesn't use hardship to produce godliness and that's like what the garden was in some ways um and and that's what we're supposed to look forward to in the future the closest example i could give of the opposite of that is if you had this like incredibly emotionally healthy christian family and they raised a kid up in that family and that kid never remembered a time they didn't know god and Mm. accepted the teachings of their parents and then went out in the world and did good and you're like well like what the heck and the, and the thing is like, well, that was what the garden was supposed to be. Was that to make be, a reformed human being that was capable of being, of doing the good. Like the Edwards, uh, John, Jonathan Edwards and his wife, they say that their kids, like they had uh, the biggest impact on the United States because of their children and what they went on to do, then a- bigger impact than any other family for the entire, the entirety of like the 1800s or something like that. It was like... Yeah. With their, the way they raise their kids to, to become godly people. We're reading that yeah. book. Uh, diff- and some of them were very man. young. Like one of his daughters died nursing a missionary who had tuberculosis, I think. I can't. I don't know. I, we were not that far. Yeah. In the book. Yeah. And um, and then, of course, Aaron Burr. Was a, I think he was a grandson <laughs> of uh, of uh, Edward. Anyway. Uh, yeah, he was. Yeah. I, and he was. I mean, yeah, he, he killed. Perhaps unfairly treated in Hamilton. But we'll see. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he's not as much of an idiot as they made him out to be in the in, yeah. in the play. Yeah, I'm sure he was no Edwards too, though, right? Yeah. So, yeah. okay. Um, I think there's a couple ways that men are going to find their responsibilities more difficult. One is practically, they're going to find their natural responsibilities of work more difficult. That is, they're going to feel like they're like they're working super hard and everybody's just devouring them. You know, like if a man is so productive that he can provide for himself, a wife, and a family. Mm-hmm. And then the, generally speaking, the family is not very thankful. And sometimes mm-hmm. the wife isn't even very thankful because right. she's like, well, you get to go out and work and stuff. And that's probably fantastic. And I'm here with these stupid children, right. Or whatever. Right. Or I have my job and you do your thing. And like, mm-hmm. so what you were no different. Like right. but oftentimes the, like oftentimes the man and woman are no different when it comes to earning a living. That's true. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but whenever a family is not ordered the same way, man and woman, and the man is working more then sometimes, sometimes it's, there's always the temptation for the wife to not appreciate what he is doing and to over appreciate what she is doing in comparison. Right. And it's probably, that has to do with that. Obviously she can't see it cause he's out and she's yeah. at home. Right. Like right. it's, it's, Right. The, the man tends to go to work and be like, I'm not appreciated here. This is so difficult. And he imagines this like paradise at home where the wife is yeah. like, you know, baking brownies and like yeah. everybody's happy and having a good time. Yeah. And meanwhile, she's at home and she's like, it's chaos. And she's not actually yeah. as in control as she would like. And she's yeah. imagining the man at work sitting around with his like pretty assistant, like just talking about his thoughts, you know, yeah. and making money. Yeah. And she's like this stupid husband, you know, and like neither yeah. of those are true, of course. Yeah. 
And both of those are encouraged by devils, you know? Yeah. So, um, so then secondly, I, then also I think men are also going to find their natural and spiritual responsibilities more difficult emotionally, right? Men are going to feel exploited by their work and their mm. sp- spiritual responsibilities are going to feel like they always have to be responsible. They always have to be in charge or, or be a statesman. And mm-hmm. what scripture teaches is that it's not the faithful family where the man is exploited, but it, in the illicit relationships of promiscuity and adultery where the man is exploited, right? So in Proverbs 6, 23 to 29, Solomon says, keep, keep yourself from the immoral woman for, and from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife. Do not lust in your heart for her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes for the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread. Notice that the wayward wife, the immoral woman is no different than a prostitute mm-hmm. to Solomon mm-hmm. reduces you to a loaf of bread. The adulteress preys upon your very life, right? So mm-hmm. what he's saying is he's saying, it's not your wife who's preying on you, who's treating you like you're nothing but a loaf of bread or devouring your life. It's actually the illicit relationships that are, that are taking from you, but not giving back. Right. The, the woman who you had committed adultery with, her, the woman you fornicate with, she's taking from you and you're taking from her. You're sucking the life out of each other. It's not a mutual life giving of love where a garden is grown and new life is received. Right. It's a mutual sucking. Right. Mm-hmm. But but your wife is the one who's given her everything to you as you've given your everything to her. Right. Mm-hmm. You are exploited. That is what is in you is taken. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the same is true for her. And new life is produced. That's more than there ever could have been before. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to recognize that, like, if you say, as a man, are you being exploited? The answer is yes. You're being exploited like a resource. You're being used. Otherwise, you'd just be wasted, right? Mm-hmm. Men are supposed to be, quote, exploited in those ways. In but some ways, not- it feels good to be – I mean, it should feel somewhat good to be exploited. Like, at yeah. least you're, you're being used up for what you were made to do, and right. you're probably producing something good. Yeah. Right. And what I would tell what I would tell women here is the same thing I would tell men relative to their wives is – express joy, thankfulness, and enjoyment Mm -hmm. in the work your husband does Mm -hmm. or in the work your wife does. Like Mm -hmm. if you're a man and your wife works, right, is employed as much as you are, show appreciation for that. And Mm -hmm. when she or you do things around the house, like show appreciation for each other and relative to your kids, show just the people who show appreciation for each other are the people who are used up in joy, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, the whole point of your life is to be used up. Like anybody who tries to get through their life and not be used up isn't living. Right. In fact, what they'll do is try to use everybody else up. Yeah, true. Right. Yeah. And, and I think another good thing, like as part of the joy and um, appreciation also, I think that men should try to do a better job of encouraging each other in general, just mm-hmm. in whatever we're doing. Like, yeah, it, it seems almost impossible to find that. And, and one and one way that I found that um, in the last couple of years is through uh, forgiven and free at high point, the, the sexual, the sexual sin group where, you know, there's a bunch of different guys there and everybody's extremely which, which to be clear. People come together to overcome sexual sin, not to <laughs> accomplish it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, yeah. Whether that's just, whether that's porn or whether, whatever it is. And people are very encouraging there. And a lot of men get free. I mean, it's like sometimes yeah. for somebody to kind of get back on the right track and doing the right thing, it really, just takes the couple men to come around them and give them some encouragement that they probably never received from their father and never received from any other yeah. man that they've ever been around. So yeah, intermasculine empowerment is really important, and especially older men to younger men, I think too. Yes, it just yeah. like just those kinds of affirmations and yeah. kind of direction, I think, is helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part I, of me is like when I get encouraged by older people, 
Pardon me, I don't even know what the heck to do. I feel very, very weird, but I know it's good for me. And I, that's probably the case for a lot of young people. Somebody older is like, yeah, good job. Like, I'm proud of you. I, I'm like, I, in my head is like, okay, like, what the heck do I say well, to this? Yeah. But I know it's good. I know it's you a just good thing to receive. Or I yeah, right. right. Yeah, I mean, especially the more respectable and masculine and truthful and honest and godly that man is, the more it matters, right? Yeah, right. Okay, so then, and then lastly, I think is that, if men accept a certain kind of authority in relationship to their wives and in the church, at least um, on some level, there's this like bickering that can happen with women about that. But the, but the problem is, is that authority is authority comes with responsibility. If you think you have authority and you don't think you have responsibility, you don't understand God at all. Hmm. Right. Authority and responsibility are always in close union with each other. And so any, any authority that you have is bound up with a special responsibility and responsibility is heavy. And yeah. so one of the things I think men need to recognize is if you are like what we call complementarian, if you believe that there is a certain ordering of the home and the church for male, quote, headship, that is a certain mm -hmm. kind of authoritative leadership, um, then you have to recognize that that is full of responsibility and you are going to struggle with that mm -hmm. because we all think we want to have power until you actually honestly and humbly bear the weight of responsibility. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things I've struggled with at High Point Church is to not take privilege in being the senior pastor, but to mm -hmm. be to be the servant Jesus wants me to be, to be responsible in every decision I make with my authority. Mm -hmm. And I can just tell you, it is an incredible weight to not be corrupted by power, even in the small little area of power right. I have as a leader of a fairly large church. Probably on top of that, too, is that maybe more incentive to not be responsible is that you're never going to be responsible to everybody. Like if you have a church of a thousand people, somebody's going to be mad at almost every decision that's made. So like as part of you, just like, like, I mean, I can see myself just being like, screw this. Like, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I don't care to bulldoze everybody. I don't care if anybody likes it. Obviously that's not, that's not what you do, but, but right. that can probably be part of the situation. Yeah. But I mean, just, I mean, th if you think about it this way, like l let's say somebody in the church is engaged in a notorious sin. That is a sin that's open and public and unrepentant. Right. Yeah. Well, whose job is it to deal with that? Right. It's mine. Right. right. Like I, I, there's nobody else for me to hand it off to. I don't go, well, you know right. what? Like Sarah should take care of that. No, yeah. she shouldn't. Like I right. go to a potluck and like, I'm like looking around. I see a flock. I see people struggling. I see marriages that are having difficulty. I see people right. who've been infertile for years. I see, and I'm checking in with people and seeing how they're doing. I, I don't just sit and eat my brownies and yeah. like laugh with friends. Right. Like, like everybody have, else. Yeah. Right. Like I'm a statesman. Like these are my people. Right. Like right. I, I've been reading the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles as my bedtime reading. And one of the things, one of the things <laughs> what that, is that like, even, what is that? It's like England between eight 30, like seven, maybe seven forty AD to okay. 1200 AD. Right. Okay. So it's like, it's like the Anglo-Saxons come in and take over the, the, the Anglos and the Saxons are two different groups of people. They come in, they yep. take over different parts of England. And so the kingdoms of Wessex, East Anglia, Mercia are kind of created. And, and then the Danish invasions begin. And there's like 200 years of fighting Vikings and Danes. And it's just horrible. And, mm -hmm. and basically the king is the king, but basically his job is to defend the country. Like mm -hmm. he gets wealth and power, but his job is to fight these constant incursions yeah. of wicked men who are basically just slaughtering, raping and stealing from everybody because mm -hmm. they don't want to be productive in their like colder climate countries. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a terrible job. I mean, I, yeah. really, I would never want to be one of these Kings. Can you imagine yeah. right. being King? That's the last thing I would want to be. But at the same time, like somebody's got to be the King. 
Right. And the, the kings that were profligate and self-centered and infi- engaged in infighting, the country fell apart. Yeah. And the ones that were just and pious and like thought about the future and made plans and really tried to defend the nation, they ended. They died in battle. They lived difficult lives, you know. But they but they're respected. They did their job right, and yeah. through history, they're probably right. respected. They have, they left a legacy that was larger yeah. than themselves. Yeah, some of them did, and then some of them got killed their second year as king. Ah, uh, sure. In a battle that they had to fight, you know, yeah, and so yeah. they, you know, there's a blip for them, but then that's it, you know, right. and they and they have no offspring because they got killed yeah. too. Right. So I, I think that like I think one of the things men have to do is we have to make peace with responsibility. Mm-hmm. We have to realize that like responsibility is another form of our exploitation, and yeah. it's a way that we die that others may live. Yeah. And if you don't get that, you have no business taking any kind of power. You have no business taking marriage vows. You have no mm-hmm. business leading the church. You have no business leading anything. Right. And once you receive that, like you realize who, who would want to do this? Yeah. It's kind of like, um, the founding fathers believe that nobody who wanted to be in government should be in government. Yeah. I was just going to bring up that, that, that seems to be the attitude that our governors and, and presidents and legislators should have is that this, I hate this, but I'm doing it because I think it's the right thing. And the overwhelming attitude of George Washington was, I wish I could go home. Yeah. Like his whole life, he's like, I will do my duty for this country. Please tell me when I can go home. Yeah. Right. And this, and the same true, it was true for people like Jefferson and Adams. I mean, like yeah. they just like, they, like they, I mean, they weren't quite as homebound as Washington was. Well, or, everybody till like FDR who, and then they had to make the new, it was like, everybody was like, all right, two terms and then I'm done out of I'm respect. Out of right. And then FDR was like four terms and then they're like, all right, we got to do something right. about this. Well, and it, that was all done out of respect to Washington because Washington yeah. was like, I mean, most people think of now like, well, he was a slaveholder. He was a terrible, like yeah. Washington was maybe the greatest man ever in the history of this continent. Okay, like his greatness, yeah. and, I, and I, I'm annoyed by Washington because I wish he would have been a Bible believing Christian instead of like yeah. a, like a um, non church going Christian deist. Like he was so Christian in so many ways, and mm-hmm. then he couldn't accept doctrine as true, and yeah. I don't know why. And right anyway, so he annoys me. Yeah. But I, that just and I and I'm also annoyed that he that he kept slaves even though he did the best thing he could given the laws of Virginia at the time, as far as I can tell. Right, but yeah. still. He was the greatest man. He he is the indispensable man in the history of America. Mm-hmm. And so when he was like, look, after two terms, you have to, and, and his predecessor, the person he looked to historically was Cincinnatus, the greatest general in the history of Rome who just wanted to go home to his farm. Yeah. Right. So when they called him up to fight the Vandals or the, or whoever they call him up again to fight mm-hmm. for, that he was at his plow. That's why the story of Cincinnatus at his plow. Cause he, he, that's where he wanted okay. to be, yeah. you know? And like this idea that like people are career politicians, like I understand if you have a so complicated a government that it takes you 15 years to even figure out how to navigate it, that like having politicians that serve for six years and go home. I mean, I think that's like people make fun of Ron Johnson because he's like, I'm going to serve this many years. and I'm going to go home. But then he realized he's like eight or nine or 10 or 12 years in. And he's like, I've just figured this place out. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like I understand in a in a huge, disgustingly large, inefficient <laughs> government, people staying longer for practical reasons. But I just think that's why the government should be smaller. Yeah, it should be smaller. And people don't the reason that it's so complex is because people don't leave when they should. Like 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 they, they stay too long and they put 
bills into place that shouldn't be there and they make things more complicated. And so it takes you 12 years to figure out what should have probably taken six months in the beginning or maybe even a couple months. And now you got to stay longer and then you can't keep to your promises that you make to people. You know, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to not stay after this or whatever. So then we have to start putting term limits because people don't know what the heck to do. Yeah. um, I would love to say more about that, but in the interest of time, let me just, I want to quote this thing from Proverbs 31, because if you've heard of Proverbs 31, it's most likely you've heard about the noble wife. Yeah. But the section right before the noble wife is the noble man. Yeah. And because it's the proverb of a king, um, people think, oh, that's just about kings. And then this other thing, the noble wife, right? It's also possible that noble there doesn't just mean like a woman of high virtue, but actually the wife of a noble. Yeah. Right. Um, that a nobleman's wife should be this way. Yeah. Right. Just as a king should be this way. And then we yeah. use that for everybody. So it says this in verses one to nine. The sayings of King Lebuel, and notice this, an oracle taught to him by his mother. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, son, the son of my womb, the son of my vows. That's a really interesting way to talk, right? (laughs) Son of my womb, the son of my vows. Do not spend your strength on women, your vigor on those who ruin kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink Mm -hmm. and forget what the law decrees and deprive Mm -hmm. all the oppressed of their rights. Give beer to those who are perishing, wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly and defend the rights of the poor and needy. So you see, like that's shorter than the, than the epilogue on the wife. Yeah. But it's critical because what he's saying is he's saying, she's saying, listen, my son, noble. And, and I think it's beautiful. This is given by his mother. He's like, I want to record this thing that my mother taught me. Right. He said, she says, don't spend your energy chasing women and drinking. She's like, let people whose lives are lost in misery comfort Mm -hmm. themselves with those things. Now, she's not saying that they're moral. She's just saying it's not for you. Mm hmm. Right. Whatever so they're going to do, you've got a higher let calling. Them do it. Some, yeah. You have a higher calling, and that, and because kings are responsible, because yeah. if you chase after that stuff, you're you won't be sober minded enough to know what the law decrees, to do justice, to care for those who are hungry and needy, and to do what's right. Mm-hmm. And like that's masculinity, mm-hmm. right? It's full of this kind of responsibility. Yeah. Right. And if you get that as a man, you can navigate this. And if you don't, uh, you can't. I was going to say that that seems like people can say all they want about, yeah, well, Solomon, I mean, it was Solomon was a king and then there's maybe this just for like presidents and kings and, and prime ministers and, and governors, but we're called to lead our family too. And good luck leading your family being a drunk who's going to go cheat on your wife. Like, like, you, you, like these, these, these things that are talked about in Proverbs 31 apply to every man if they're going to take on the leadership role of, of leading the family. Yeah. I mean, I, I would add excessive hobbies to this video yeah. game playing or some right. kind of excessive hobby Th- that like that, which takes you away from your responsibility. Like there is, there is a space, like we were talking about before, a limitation on productivity for yeah. enjoyment. I mean, God is very clear that he wants his people not to be treated as slaves, but mm-hmm. to be people who are capable of enjoyment, even though they're productive. Yeah. So there's a place for things like hobbies, but there, but never to the detriment of the inheritance of our responsibility as men. And mm-hmm. so I think that, um, that one, men and women should read all of Proverbs 31 together 
to study manhood and womanhood, right? But yeah. but I think that when men understand this responsibility and we and we think of it like the, the knights of old did, that like honor is the greatest thing you yeah. could possibly receive and right. and take on for yourself, that vows are the greatest thing that you could take on for yourself. Mm-hmm. That if you embrace that, then you will go to work with a, with more of a smile on your face. You'll treat your wife with great dignity mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things. But if you don't, if you don't accept responsibility in your heart as an act of faith and mm-hmm. as a creed that you believe in about honor and nobility, then all of your responsibilities are going to be like they're going to feel like chores. They're going to it's going to feel like toil. It's going to feel like why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. And you're not going to realize that that's your life. Your mm-hmm. life is literally made up of these like beautiful repetitions of meaning. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I think that would be a good place to wrap it up. Hour and forty five minutes. Um. So yeah, I mean, we, and I also want to say for people listening to this, if they want to hear more about masculinity i mean we did we did a two-hour podcast called what what does it mean to be a man and uh, we talked about a billion things in that one so go back and listen to that one um but nick is there anything you want to say obviously you just kind of wrapped it up a little bit but is there anything fine concluding thoughts or anything like that no i think that um i think recognizing that the very things that are the fall made more difficult are the very things we embrace by God's grace and in his will all the more. Mm-hmm. And if you embrace that um, in real faith and believing in God's goodness, then I think that you're going to find you're going to overcome what's special about being a man in the fall and what's special about embodying masculinity and salvation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, okay. So next week we're going to be talking about how Jesus can be both the son of man and the son of God. Um, so that'll be an interesting one. And then after that, I think we have one more as part of the biblical anthropology series about how sanctification is, how image is bound to sanctification. And then I think that's where we, we wrap it up in the, in the series. We're gonna have other bonus episodes. Do you have something you want to say? Nick? Yeah. With Jesus being son of man and son of God, that, that in it, we'll talk about how Jesus reveals God Right. He's the word of God made flesh, but he's also perfect humanity. Yeah. And that that dual revelation is something we need to understand. Yeah. And so, well, that'll be coming up next week. And then we got some exciting, fun interviews and things like that. So anyways, if you enjoyed this one and you want to hear more, make sure you like, subscribe, follow, share this with your friends and go to www.optivenetwork.com for more. I think that's it. We'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode is helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip. Mm-hmm.